Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Yesterday, Nancy Pelosi launched an impeachment inquiry. Today, we got a transcript of President Trump's conversation with President Zelensky of Ukraine. And there's been a lot of reaction to the transcript, the summary transcript that's out there. And Elizabeth, obviously, the president came out and described it as a nothing phone call. We heard his quote on the BBC. Uh, Elizabeth Warren from uh, the Massachusetts, the presidential candidate, said, if this is the version of events that the president's team thinks is most favorable, he is in very deep jeopardy. We need to see a full whistleblower complaint of the administration, uh, and the administration needs to follow the law now. Um, another reaction is from Julian Castro, the presidential candidate. Donald Trump pressured a foreign, foreign government to work with his Justice Department to investigate a political opponent. Congress should cancel recess and begin impeachment proceedings immediately. Hillary Clinton weighed in on Twitter and said the president of the United States has betrayed our country. That's not a political statement. It's a harsh reality and we must act. He is a clear and present danger to things that keep us strong and free. I support impeachment. We're going to talk about what's happening now with Yoni Applebaum. He is senior editor at The Atlantic. He wrote the impeachment cover story in the March issue of The Atlantic. Thanks for joining us, Yoni. Hey, nice to be with you again. Um, You know, when you read the transcript, and I'm sure a lot of people have had a chance to look at the transcript this morning, there is a kind of innocuous banter to the transcript. there's also uh, some things that look worse for the president. Um, the, the the sections with Attorney General Barr invoking Attorney General Barr repeatedly and with Rudolph Giuliani in the same breath, th- those look bad. I think it's really a remarkable transcript. You've got to step back and remember that this is a call between the president of the United States and a newly elected foreign leader. Uh, and we've got a ton of interests uh, in Ukraine, uh, including pipelines that run through it, including uh, Russia's seizure of Ukrainian territory, including the ongoing uh, civil war raging uh, in part of Ukraine that has been seized by separatists. And the president's uh, real you know, foremost and, and uh, I have to say sole focus here is pursuing a, a series of conspiracy theories. Uh, and he enlists uh, the aid of his personal attorney and of the Attorney General of the United States in pressing Mr. Zelensky for cooperation in, in pursuing these theories. Now, the, in, I hadn't heard so much about the Attorney General being involved. You know, one of the things I was looking for was like, really, did he ask nine times for them to look into the Biden thing? And, and I guess it wasn't nine times, but um, the inclusion of the Attorney General so prominently is um, – it's a little breathtaking. It's stunning. Now, now, Mr. Barr, I should say, has released a statement saying that he never discussed this with the president, has not had any conversations with the Ukrainians. Uh, But back in May, uh, Mr. Trump said publicly that uh, he intended to to rope the attorney general into pursuing leads with respect to Ukraine. It's a little hard to follow the president's train of thought here. Uh, He seems to think that maybe Ukraine has Hillary Clinton's email server uh, following uh, a set of conspiracy theories down the rabbit hole. Uh, he thinks that um, maybe Joe Biden uh, helped can an honest prosecutor, although the international community uh, was backing Mr. Biden in his in his push to, to can a corrupt prosecutor in Ukraine. So, uh, you know, it's a little hard to parse this transcript at times because it is so divorced from uh, what the outside world regards as reality. But when you look at this, you've got uh, the attorney general, who is the person deciding whether or not 
the whistleblower complaint filed by a, a intelligence official should be pursued uh, brought in directly to the matter that the whistleblower is blowing the whistle on. Uh, it's as clear a conflict as you can imagine and a very good indication that this really isn't something that the Department of Justice itself can investigate. Um, what what other things are, uh, appear to you in the transcript that jump out? You know, th- this is uh, like a bad mob movie uh, in that the president uh, is very clear um, that he wants something from Ukraine. Uh, and uh, he complains that Ukraine has not been reciprocal. Uh, the president of, of Ukraine asks uh, uh, to buy more Javelin missiles, which, which are essential to Ukraine's self-defense. Uh, and uh, the president responds and says, I would like you to do us a favor, though, because our country has been through a lot, and Ukraine knows a lot about it. Uh, and that's where he goes into to this, um, I, I really don't know how to describe it other than to say insane conspiracy theory about Hillary Clinton's email server um, and then into the Bidens. Uh, and so what you have here is a president who reportedly has frozen U.S. military assistance to a country that is very much under attack by, by a hostile foreign adversary. Uh, then he gets on the phone with the guy and, and says, if you want javelins, first I'd like you to do us a favor. Uh, it's hard to imagine a, a more direct or coercive ask. Uh, and uh, it's quite clear that President Zelensky hears it like that. Now, uh, what's your reaction to President Zelensky? He's a guy who ha- seems to have one thing front and center, and it's keeping in with the good graces of the United States. And he is saying lots of nice, favorable things. He's buttering up the president. Um, uh, Now, he mentions his official staying in Trump hotels at one point. You know, this is uh, a person in an impossible situation. He's come to office as uh, a reformer, as as Mr. Clean in, in the Ukrainian imagination. He's on the phone with uh, the man who more than anyone else probably controls the fate of his nation. Uh, And he has studied up. He's been well briefed and understands that he needs to convince Mr. Trump that he is a friend, that there is um, personal fealty or loyalty at work here. This is the pattern that other foreign leaders have found, uh, that that he's very much in Mr. Trump's corner. At the same time, he clearly uh, doesn't want to directly accede to to a a series of of unhinged requests. And so he, he manages to sort of toe the line throughout this transcript uh, both indicating uh, how personally supportive he is of Mr. Trump without ever giving any real concrete commitments uh, to, to running down uh, theories that, that ultimately, uh, at least so far, seem to have no basis in fact. Uh, one of the things he does is he asks Trump for more information. He says, well, if you have any information about all this stuff that you're asking me for information about or some, some kind of thing I can go on, give it to me. Yeah, and and you know the, the Ukrainian government, uh, as this has broken over the last few days, has released a statement saying that they're happy to launch an investigation. Uh, um, they just need the formal request. Uh, the bind for for President Trump is that there is a process around formal requests. You need, for example, evidence. Uh, and so there has been no formal request for, for cooperation forthcoming thus far. But but this is really the situation that Ukraine finds itself in. Uh, President Trump has prioritized the digging up of dirt on his domestic political opponents over the foreign relations of the United States, over the national interest. And I think that's what really jumps out in this transcript. Whatever you think about the directness of the quid pro quo, whatever you think about the substance of the allegations he's raising, he's the president of the United States talking to a foreign head of government. His job at a moment like this is to advance the interests of the United States. And all he can think about is his private political concerns. 
I'm talking with Yoni Applebaum. He's senior editor at The Atlantic, where he oversees the ideas section, and he did the March 2019 cover story uh, that was called Impeach Donald Trump. And we are going to take some phone calls and ask what you're thinking about uh, the impeachment proceeding that is going to ensue here. 312-923-9239 is our number. 312-923-9239 is the number here. And I I wonder, um, you know, Yoni, there's – the polls still don't show really – uh, strong support for removing Trump from office. They're very divided. I was reading uh, the poll that was uh, the, the Quinnipiac poll that was published Wednesday morning, and it says that um, 57 percent of people say he should not be impeached. Uh, it's not a popular item right now. Well, you know, when they launched impeachment proceedings against Richard Nixon, that uh, the numbers were even more dismal. Uh, Part of the problem is that the public hears impeachment as an outcome, should the president be removed from office. Uh, In fact, impeachment is properly regarded as a process. Uh, It's a process of fact-finding, of investigation, of the public airing of evidence and testimony. And ultimately, then, the House will have to decide whether or not to proffer charges against the president. It would take a majority of the House to approve those charges. And then they'd go on to trial in the Senate. So, So... you know, I think there can be a cart before the horse element of this. One thing we are reminded of today is that the Department of Justice cannot be placed in a position where it needs to investigate the man who appointed the Attorney General. That's entirely clear out of the summary of the phone call that the White House has released, that the Attorney General is himself mixed up in this. The reason that Congress is the body charged by the Constitution with with the process of impeachment is that at a moment like this, when charges, credible charges, have been leveled against the President, what you want is an independent body directly accountable to the American voters, which can sift through that evidence in public and be accountable to the voters as they do it. Uh, The name of that process is impeachment. I suspect that if, if, and I've seen polling that, that suggests that if the question is not should the president be impeached, which they hear is removed, but rather should Congress investigate, the numbers flip around in a hurry. The number to call is 312-923-9239. We'll take a few phone calls with Yoni as we sort through what's happening with uh, the transcript that's come down today with President Trump's conversation with President Zelensky of Ukraine. And I wanted to ask a question about what you think this will do to the politics of what's happening these days, because an impeachment proceeding becomes very central to what's happening. It uh, takes the wind out of the presidential campaign. People stop talking about issues so much and everything becomes a referendum on Donald Trump. And is that that, uh, good for the presidential campaign. How do you sort that out? There is nothing about the last two and a half years that has been particularly good for American democracy. Uh, and and it's at this point simply a question of alternatives. Uh, the two alternatives uh, now facing House Democrats are turning a blind eye to this, which is what they have largely done to this point, uh, or proceeding forward with, with a formal impeachment inquiry. Uh, I, I think the politics of this enter in in a funny way. Uh, The movement within the House toward impeachment was not driven in the last 48 hours by a groundswell of calls from voters or or a big shift in in public opinion polling, as as you pointed out. 
It was instead the slowly dawning realization uh, by many members that this is what they were sent to Washington to do. Uh, this is the gravest decision they will make in their political careers, coupled uh, with the realization that the president has no intention of seeing a free and fair election waged in 2020. He is already willing to put uh, the power of American law enforcement and the person of the attorney general and the power of uh, the U.S. defense establishment uh, in the form of military aid to Ukraine uh, to work in the service of his own re-election campaign. Uh, I think many Democrats had been hoping they could avoid this, hoping that somebody else would relieve them of the responsibility for dealing with Donald Trump. Uh, and they are belatedly realizing uh, that, in fact, it is their job. It is the job that was assigned to them by the Constitution of the United States. And, and there is no passing the buck on this. Uh, that, that's a pretty interesting argument. The, um, uh, it seems like Elizabeth Warren has been one of the presidential candidates who has been out there um, with an impeachment call right off the bat. Yes, and, and I take Warren's call and the calls of others uh, like her with a grain of salt. What I'd like to see them calling for is an investigatory process, at least her initial calls on this, uh, were for immediate uh, impeachment, that is, for a vote in the House, uh, which I think would be a, a mistake. The process here is valuable. The way that you push back against an administration uh, that has shown uh, a disregard for, for norms, for processes, for rules and procedures, uh, is by bringing those processes to bear. I'm guided in this by something uh, Archibald Cox, uh, uh, who was involved in, in the Watergate affair said, uh, he, he said that, that the process of Watergate was actually incredibly healthy for American democracy in, in ways that he had not realized, uh, that, that it renewed Americans' faith in the mechanisms, processes, and procedures that they had at their disposal. Uh, and so I think that as Democratic candidates call, they've got to be really careful to distinguish between the immediate removal of this president and the need to put around this president's misconduct a rule-based order. The solution to Trump's lawlessness is not an equal degree of lawlessness or an even more rapid rush to judgment. It's a process, uh, and the process is there. Well, is this a, one of those situations, though, where this all revolves around this one incident and by the end of the week, we're going to know everything about it. We're going to get the, the whistleblower is going to testify. We're going to get uh, a lot of uh, information, supposedly. And um, there won't be that much to investigate, will there? Well, I don't know. I've, I've been kind of stunned by what has come out already. Uh, there may be quite a bit more. But what's there in plain view already is uh, the, the conduct of Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal attorney, who was quite clear with the press at the time what he was trying to accomplish in Ukraine. We now have uh, a summary, um, some sort of transcript out of the White House of this phone call. Uh, there's the whistleblower complaint, which is supposed to be released by the end of the week, which apparently includes additional uh, evidence or allegations. Uh, so, so we may find out quite a bit fairly rapidly, uh, but there will be more questions to, to be asked, including around the impounding of the military aid and, and uh, whether that was, as it appears, a, a violation of, of the law, a post-Watergate law, passed to prevent a president from doing exactly this. Uh, I, I think that the more interesting question is not just how much is in public view, 
but can Congress mount a case that the purpose of having an inquiry is not just to surface new evidence and allegations. It's, it's also to bring them before the American public. Uh, it's really hard. I, I suspect many of your listeners have found this. I know I have to keep up with every twist and turn in the news cycle. Uh, and part of what, what an impeachment process does is it focuses attention. The president is exceptionally good at focusing attention on the things he wants voters to pay attention to. This is Congress's mechanism for doing the same. We're going to take a few phone calls. Let's sneak one in before the break. And Jeremy, you're on WBEZ. Hi, thanks for taking my call. What do you think is up here? Um, I just think it's not necessarily relevant what the public thinks, whether 57% of the public thinks he should be impeached or not, considering, I hate to say how ignorant the American public is, by and large, as to issues of the Constitution, how many amendments there are, uh, the oversight role of Congress, the process of checks and balances. So many people perceive this as, oh, well, of course he could do it because I would do something equally as shady to harm a, 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 a rival, uh, seek whatever means, whatever motives it takes. I'll do whatever it takes to get what I want. Of course, that's, it's not, but that's not legal under the Constitution for the President of the United States to do it. So they don't necessarily see the quid pro quo as maybe even a violation of, of his office. But that's only because the people in this country know so scant little that he's the chief citizen, the keeper of the seal, that he has all kinds of responsibilities, and so does Congress. You know, under Article Sections 1, 2, 3, you know, the, there's a process that is constitutional that the people of this country are, even on the left, people on the left don't necessarily realize it. You know, um, it's just sad. More people can recognize Will Smith than, you know, uh, Mike Pence. And so you're, that's the population. <laughs> okay, so there's a vote for uh, don't go by the polls. Uh, thanks a lot for calling us, Jeremy. We'll take some more phone calls after the break. 312-923-9239 is the number to call. Yoni Applebaum is with us. He's a senior editor at The Atlantic. He wrote the March cover story, which was Impeach. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking about the ability of the U.S. House to start an impeachment inquiry into President Trump. Uh, the, there's been a release today of a transcript of his conversation with uh, President Zelensky. And we're taking a few phone calls at 312-923-9239. With me is Yoni Applebaum from The Atlantic. And Leonard, you are on WBEZ. Hello. How are you, Leonard? What do you think about all this? Well, uh, my comment is I'm wondering what had happened to the objectivity of the reporting. Uh, Mr. Applebaum, uh, in, in his uh, piece, have uh, uh, completely uh, ignored the, the issues of uh, Hunter Biden and the fact that the Hunter Biden received $3 billion kickback from China, $3 billion kickback from Ukraine, and you have a president who's trying to look into why uh, somebody who is a son of a vice president who is in charge of Ukraine policy or was in charge of the Ukrainian policy receiving billions of dollars in kickbacks and, and all of a sudden this is being considered uh, an impeachable okay. offense. Okay, let's uh, get a response here. Billions of dollars in kickbacks? <laughs> 
Well, I, I appreciate the caller's uh, illustration of, of the difficulty uh, that this story poses. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of bad information out there, uh, and it's also a complicated story. Hunter Biden uh, joined the board of, of a company and also had uh, uh, a private equity fund he was managing that, that managed billions of dollars in assets, which is not the same thing as, as receiving kickbacks, uh, including from uh, some fairly shady places. I don't think that there's any particular defense of Hunter Biden's conduct here. Um, It is the kind of thing that is unfortunately all too common in Washington, where folks uh, with some regularity trade in on their connections to to the powerful politicians who run the city. Uh, And and I I don't know that there's a defense of Hunter Biden's conduct. I I also don't know that anyone has credibly alleged any criminal misconduct on the part of Hunter Biden. Uh, And... Uh, the allegations against his father uh, have even less of a, of a foundation in fact. And so th- these things can simultaneously be true. It can be the case that Hunter Biden was acting in a very shady manner, uh, trading on his father's name in order to get paid. It can be the case that Joe Biden was doing what the international community had asked him to do in pressuring the Ukrainian government to dismiss a a corrupt prosecutor general. And it can also be the case that uh, the focus on these things is uh, quite deliberately uh, intended to distract uh, from some uh, far more serious and damaging allegations uh, and and trying to hold those uh, somewhat different storylines and tension with each other is, is I think, the, the task that all of us face. Now, President Trump has made already and will make again uh, the argument that uh, he was investigating corruption, and that's a good thing. He, will put, he puts that out there. He does. Um, the problem is that the transcript of this call released by the White House, uh, which I should say again is, is not a literal transcription of the call, but, but something more, more uh, approaching a, a summary or a paraphrase, um, it, points in in a very different direction. So he describes the prosecutor general who, by the consensus of the the international community, uh, was in in fact sitting on allegations of corruption and had closed an investigation into Hunter Biden's employer um, as a a very corrupt bad guy who was dismissed in in favor of a, a, sorry, as a very good guy who was uh, dismissed in in favor of a corrupt one. Uh, And and there's just no evidence that that's the case. Uh, He similarly goes after the career foreign service service officer who was serving as the United States ambassador to Ukraine when he took office, uh, somebody who at Rudy Giuliani's urging he forced out as, as a very bad person, which is, you know, just a hell of a thing to say about a woman who has uh, devoted her life to the service of this country if, if you have no facts to back the allegation, as, as the president appears not to have. And, and so when you look at this, I don't know whether or not Donald Trump believed he was fighting corruption. I, I do know that, that complaining about the firing of a corrupt prosecutor uh, and, and then similarly pressing uh, a country as a precondition of receiving military aid to investigate your political rivals is, is a darn strange way to go about fighting corruption. Let's take another call. Robin, you're on WBEZ. Yes, hello. Thank you. I don't understand why Speaker Pelosi has not simply assigned a select committee, as they did in Watergate. I'm old enough to have listened day by day to the entire Watergate uh, select committee hearings, and we learned so much and so many details. And by the time it got to the House Judiciary Committee, um, 
we sort of knew most of what we needed to know. I, we, the people, I don't understand why she insists on having six committees um, participating in this process. It's just, and especially after the Democrats have sort of floundered in the latest attempts to have witnesses before hearings. Um, I just don't get it. Uh, I'd love to hear your comments on the absence of a select committee. All right, Robin, uh, interesting question. Well, this is a great question. You know, if you go back to the Watergate committee, uh, it's not just the presence or absence of a select committee. What they did was they went and they hired a really professional staff. So they got Sam Dash, uh, an incredibly distinguished attorney, uh, to, to lead the, the investigation and to question the witnesses. Uh, the minority counsel was Fred Thompson, who had gone to be a United States senator. And they hired up a, a genuinely bipartisan uh, group of staffers, including some very distinguished attorneys and some very young and promising ones. There were two young, promising attorneys on on that team, uh, one from the Republican side, one from the Democratic side, who got tasked with figuring out what impeachment was for. Um, they were, uh, somewhat amusingly, Bill Weld, who's now running against the president for the Republican nomination, and uh, Hillary Rodham, uh, who keeps surfacing in, in our, our uh, impeachments uh, over the last 50 years. Um, so, so you had just an incredibly talented group of people who were actually conducting the investigatory work. It was not the present-day circus of, of members uh, grandstanding for five minutes before passing the microphone down. Um, it, it's a good question why Pelosi won't do this. Uh, two factors that, that reporting indicates play large here. One is jurisdictional disputes. Um, Jerry Nadler, has, who chairs the House Judiciary Committee, has been a thorn in Pelosi's side. Um, she would like to sideline him in favor of her ally, Adam Schiff, uh, who, who um, runs the House uh, Select Committee on Intelligence. Uh, and um, that is controversial within the caucus, uh, where Nadler's allies feel he's been the guy who's really been pushing this forward. Um, and so, uh, as so often, Congress is, is somewhat more concerned with turf battles than, than with the bigger picture. But the other thing is that, that Speaker Pelosi has shown very little appetite for a serious impeachment inquiry. Uh, the press conference yesterday appears just to have been a press conference where, where she went out and she spoke the magic words, but nothing changed in terms of process, procedures, or staff. Uh, and uh, she continues to count down, as she says, 13 and a third months uh, uh, until the 2020 election, and to all indications, remains much more interested in trying to use Donald Trump's unpopularity in order to take the House, Senate, and White House uh, than in uh, in the short term holding him to account for his conduct. All right. So you think Nancy Pelosi is, in a way, is foot dragging this? I think that her own account of her logic here. Uh, suggests that her priority is beating Donald Trump in, in 2020, beating the Republicans in, in 2020. Uh, and, and she's been quite clear about that, emphatically clear, uh, that she will lead where, she will go where the, the evidence here leads and allow the investigation to take its course, but um, repeatedly shows no appetite uh, for building this up into a larger and more prominent process than it otherwise would be. And when her members uh, essentially began to defect uh, over the previous 48 hours and back a, a full-on inquiry, she jumped out ahead of it by saying, yes, it's an inquiry. Exactly what we've been doing uh, until now will henceforth be known as the inquiry. Now, uh, do you think that there's been a lot of verbiage about her intelligence background and that um, she thinks that the president is now in her wheelhouse? She helped craft this legislation on the whistleblower. Is that, Do you think that is motivating her here? I mean, it sounds like you don't. 
It's very hard for me to look at the announcement yesterday and figure out what changed other than the magic words coming out of the speaker's mouth. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm eager to learn more. Perhaps uh, there will be further uh, details or announcements forthcoming. But on the basis of what we have so far, nothing else appears to have changed. I, I do think that the speaker is... Uh, skeptical of impeachment. Uh, she lived through the Clinton impeachment. Uh, she's been clear about this as well. Um, regarded that as something that blew up in the face of Republicans. Uh, and, and that has colored her understanding. Whereas uh, others who, who lived through the Watergate years in, in prominent roles um, have been much more supportive of what the process can accomplish, not just in terms of, of tactical political goals, uh, but in terms of, of pushing uh, procedures and, and safeguards and norms in the face of lawlessness. Let's take another phone call. Ken, you're on WBEZ. Thank you for taking my call. I'm curious about what has been variously described as a transcript and that also a summary of the call. I've read it, and it reads like a verbatim transcript, but they're calling it a summary. So th that raises the question, is there more that is missing and what might be in that? It also harkens back to the summary that William Barr gave about the Mueller report, which it turns out was greatly at odds with what was it, the substance of that report. So I'm wondering uh, what your thoughts are on, on the summary versus transcript. So what we have from the White House um, comes with a note at the bottom that reads that this is not a verbatim transcript of a discussion the text in this document records the notes and recollections of Situation Room duty officers and NSU staff assigned to listen and memorialize the conversation in written form as the conversation takes place. Uh, added to that is, is the additional uh, complication that this may or may not have been done in translation. That's a little unclear. Um, so the, the White House is not claiming this is a word-for-word -word transcript. On the other hand, as you read it, it's clear that... that um, it matches uh, the rhythms of, of the president's normal conversation. Uh, so, so one suspects that at least large stretches of this are, are uh, verbatim. Um, there aren't a whole lot of words here, given that the supposed length of the call, um, which has raised some questions. There's a handful of ellipses uh, in the transcript, of whether that's uh, a sort of a deliberate omission or I think much more probably uh, a place where the staff didn't quite follow what somebody was saying um, is, is unclear. Uh, I have no reason at this stage, there's no reporting to indicate that, that anything in this transcript was altered for political purposes. Uh, on the other hand, given the consistent record of this White House, um, I think uh, a lot of folks would like to hear uh, direct from people who listen to the call, whether or not this accurately uh, reflects their own uh, memory of, of what transpired in that conversation. And the whistleblower, did they, did they see something beyond this transcript or hear the full, full context? The president and those associated with him have made a series of claims about this whistleblower and what they did or did not have access to. Given that the rest of us still don't know the whistleblower's identity, it's a little hard to evaluate those claims. Um, there were people listening on this call, and it is entirely possible that one of them is the whistleblower. Um, we also don't know uh, whether, uh, although again, there has been third-party reporting, whether there are additional pieces of evidence in the whistleblower complaint beyond the transcript. Several outlets have reported that there are. Uh, and so it's, it's reasonable to suppose that this is not the entirety of the complaint against the president. Yoni Applebaum is a senior editor at The Atlantic. He wrote the Impeach cover story for the March issue of The Atlantic. And thanks a lot for joining us and talking about all the controversy over uh, what's happening with President Trump in Ukraine. Always a pleasure. 
Coming up after the break, we'll have our Global Notes segment, and we'll talk about music from Portugal. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Global Notes, our look at international music with music and culture writer Catalina Maria Johnson. Great to see you. Great to see you, Jerome. Well, we're going to go to Portugal, which sounds exciting. I think a lot of people fantasize about Portugal as a great place to visit, and you just visited. I sure did. It was an amazing week. It was part of a conference industry showcase set of workshops and panels that I participated in that was coordinated and founded by the Arte Institute. It was called Revolution Hope Imagination Rai, and got to see a lot of music. It was an amazing time. And of course, yeah, Portugal's on the tip of everybody's tongue. I mean, the New York Times is always writing about it. It's kind of like the next hipster destination. But there's a lot of Portugal that we know. A lot of it is tied into Lisbon and certainly the music of Fado. But what this conference aimed to do was also share like the riches of other areas and the music of other areas. And there were some surprises. <laughs> so you traveled around to a bunch of different areas in Portugal that were not Lisbon, basically. Exactly. Um, got to see some of the city, experience some of the food, participate in panels. In my case, I was participating as a member of the press. So I was talking with artists that were wanting to know how to professionalize their approach and how to approach media and just in general kind of how to present their art um, in a way that an international audience and in particular a U.S. audience might then actually check it out. Well, let's hear some music. Well, interestingly enough, I wanted to start with the most surprising and unexpected. Um, this was in the city of Leiria, and not that far from uh, Fatima, but it was one of the most uh, contemporary uh, showcases that we saw put on by a record label called Omnicord. And I was like, this name is very familiar. So I started looking it up, and it was an artist named Surma who comes from Leiria, and she's been to South by Southwest. <laughs> and Bob Boylan wrote about her, so that's why I knew the name. And it's an amazing music. This is exactly what you would never expect from Portugal. From the city of Leiria, this is Surma.
That's Surma, music from Portugal, here on Global Notes with Catalina Maria Johnson and me, Jerome McDonald. Yeah, that sounds really great, and I would never guess Portugal if you played that for me. <laughs> no, and um, it was amazing to see this all created by one young woman. I mean, she had equipment, she had instruments, she had bells, she had a suitcase that she banged on at one point in time, uh-huh. and a guitar, and she just moved from bit to bit. It was truly magical. And again, the record label Omnicord Records, I think if you look at their catalog, you'll be very surprised. We saw some really fascinating stuff in the city of Leiria. Now, the next music we're going to hear is way more traditional and (laughs) way more community-oriented, and it's about everyday people who sing all the time diametrically opposed to what we just heard, Surma. So this was a week of surprises. And again, talking about the Rai Revolution Hope Imagination Conference in Portugal, put on by Arte Institute. And it was the inaugural year. So it was a very special time. So I have to like set this up. I mean, a lot of times we didn't exactly know where we were going. <laughs> we just, <laughs> got we're, we're, just got on a bus. Just got on a bus and went, went somewhere. The and they thing. said, there's going to be a surprise. Because the other thing is none of this was in order. So like we'd go in the south and north and back up north. So I kind of never knew I was. So one of the most amazing experiences was in the city of Evora. Now, this is a medieval city. It's incredibly beautiful, not so far from Lisbon. And we were in the evening walking to a space where there was going to be a surprise. And we walked into this beautiful building and there were amazing spreads of food laid out. And it was kind of a community center with a lot of rural, like kind of agricultural artifacts on the wall. And there were a number of men and a few women kind of bustling about and bringing, everything was home-cooked, literally. Amazingly fancy home-cooked, but everything had been cooked in the kitchen next to the community center by this group of men and women. So we dug in. (laughs) It was amazing. It was such a spread. And then they said, okay, so now we're going to sing for you. And this group of, I don't know, 25, 30, mostly men, four women, stood in one corner of the room and started singing. And some of us just started, like, crying. Um, It was so powerful, this incredible human connection through the meal. And they all worked at a factory that was owned by Siemens, now is an American factory that's been in the area for 50 years. Then after they do the factory, they get together and sing. And they have this community center that has been offered to them by the city. And this kind of song, Canto de Alentejo or Canto Alentejano, has been named UN Intangible Heritage of Humanity. It started off with like agricultural work songs. It was really one of the most amazing musical moments I've ever experienced and this incredible connection that comes about through the music it really gave you hope for the world
That's Kante Alentejou, a form of polyphonic singing recognized by UNESCO for its unique cultural heritage. And Alentejou is a region in Portugal that Catalina Maria Johnson was in. And that's the people who came out and sang to her like that. And I was watching a small documentary about this on YouTube, and it seems like everybody in the region sings. They sing all the time. They sing every day. And making food and then getting up and singing is what you do. It was quite amazing. Um, and again, this is in southern Portugal in Evora. But to experience this art form that is so communal, so powerful, so simple, and so complex all at the same time. So that was quite a treat. And it always starts with one guy, the, the soloist who has perfect pitch, and then they bring in another voice that's colorful as they describe it, and then the group comes in. Sometimes this is more of a lament almost, but it really was beautiful. We're talking about music from Portugal. Catalina Maria Johnson was just there on a trip that was sponsored by Arte Institute in a lot of different cities, a lot of different places, and got to experience things beyond Fado in Portugal. Way beyond Fado. I mean, Fado is amazing, no mistake about that. But to experience kind of the range of the kind of music, and this is just the briefest of taste. <laughs> and now we're going to keep going south to the Algarve, to a city called Lola. This is a very different kind of vocal, harmonized kind of singing by a trio of women. The name of their group is Las Mosoilas. I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. It's very similar to Spanish, Mosuelas, which is young women. And that was the problem. I kept speaking Portuñol, you know, like <laughs> a little bit of Portuguese, a little bit of Spanish. There's apparently, there's like cursing and naggery, and they definitely have this charming kind of slightly flippant quality. Again, basically vocal, three women harmonizing. And this is a song about weaving women, although I'm not sure if there's a metaphor there, if they're weaving something else or they're literally weaving. But this was music that we heard in Lola in the Algarve, southern Portugal. A mulher que é de cedeira está no purgatório e vida Pão no pé, pão na cabeça, pão no cu, pão na barriga A mulher que é de cedeira está no purgatório e vida Pão no pé, pão na cabeça, pão no cu, pão na barriga A mulher que é de cedeira está no purgatório e vida Pão no pé, pão na cabeça, pão no cu, pão na barriga A mulher que é de cedeira está no purgatório e vida Pão no pé, pão na cabeça, pão no cu, pão na barriga well, that's a sign that sounds a little bit Philip Glassish, and uh, you know, I can see it being about weaving. Uh, it's another, but it's, it's, <laughs> and um, apparently, they're slightly raunchy songs. I don't know if this is a raunchy one. I apologize. <laughs> If it is. But there was definitely a bit of like theatricality happening. And it it was a conversation, kind of a, a dialogue. Or in this case, it was three women kind of like shooting the you know what. <laughs> a little bit. It was a lot of fun to hear and to watch. And that's my understanding. They're Lisbon-based, but we saw them in the way south in the Algarve in a city called Lola because that's one of the Portuguese folk musics of that region. We're talking about music from Portugal with Catalina Maria Johnson here on Global Notes. And our final song, 
Um, I thought it was just plain beautiful. It's an amazing song. So here's the story. This one has quite a story. A city called Torres Vedras that puts on perhaps the major carnival festivity in all of Portugal. It's a huge, huge carnival. And I'm talking massive um, with these special figures. And there's several hallmarks to this festival in Torres Vedras, to the carnival in Torres Vedras. One of the hallmarks is that men dress up as women. So, Just like in Brazil. <laughs> the matrafona. So that was one of them. And the others that it's very traditional. There's a king and the queen, and they're crowned. But since there were no women permitted at the beginning, the queen is also male. And the phrase that happens a lot during this uh, carnaval is, Lo mais português de todo Portugal. That's my portuñol. The most Portuguese in all of Portugal. So it was kind of fascinating because there's the this sort of the gender fluidity, if you will, aspect of it, the very Portuguese aspect, and this wild celebration. Yet at the same time, every year there's an anthem composed. And Felix, an artist and musician, composed the anthem for that year's Carnaval, um, last year's, and it's called Samba da Matrafona. And we got a chance to meet uh, Susana and hear how she composed the song and why she composed it. And it was fascinating because on one level, she composed a samba, which is, of course, Brazilian, because she says there's always this tension, this tension between Portugal and Brazil. And, of course, she didn't say, but the colonizer and the colonized land and peoples. And there's also this tension between men and women. And yet here in Torres Vedras, at a carnival, we have the matrafona, which is the classic, which is the men dressing as women. And she wanted to create a samba to kind of bring together also to dissolve the tension in her own way and in a small way between the most Portuguese of Portuguese carnivals and Brazil. And so she created the samba, the matrafona, which is one of the most popular anthems ever for the Torres Vedras Carnaval, but also... She brought in two wonderful Brazilian musicians to be featured in the Samba da Matrafona. And that was Emicida, who's a rapper, who I've actually also seen at some point, and Seca Pagodinho. And I hope I'm not butchering that name, Seca Pagodinho, one of the greatest samba singers. And it's beautiful. And it's joyous. So in sharing this, the Samba da Matrafona, the anthem from 2018 from the Carnaval in Torres Vedras. I thought maybe it was such a wonderful symbol of, you know, how do you resolve these tensions, these divisions, these centuries-old wounds in some way between men and women, between different kinds of people, between colonies and the formerly colonized. And it's not that music is the answer or arts are the answer, but it certainly is one way that we can come together despite all the differences and bring people together rather than divide. So this is a song that the samba, the matrafona, that seemed to perfectly exemplify that, a reconciliation of division through the arts. So that was one of my big takeaways from a wonderful trip in Portugal. Ela tem hora de partida na caravela Só o final do túnel fará voltar Matrafona tem mulher na casa dela 
Santa Páscoa fará parar É matafona Ninguém se vai enganar E quem se vê Só por te Cumpre bem certo All right, that's just achingly beautiful and wonderful. I, I you know, that is makes a you want to get tune. up and dance. <laughs> makes you want to go to Portugal, I think. Yeah, for sure. Uh, sounds like a great trip you had to Portugal, and it's our last Global Notes, Catalina Maria Johnson, and it has been always a delight and pleasure to be with you. You are such a joy and ray of sunshine, uh, for, I think, for this show, uh, certainly, and for the world. Ah, thanks, now, Jerome. It's been such a treat to have the freedom to share some just really special and different music. I mean, I think in many environments there's always, like, commercial and corporate interest uh, algorithms saying, listen to this, because uh, we know you'll want more. And uh, so much music that has become a product, you know, a product to sell. So to experience music that is on the edges of that, that's not... It's truly cultural, like the things product. we did today. Exactly. And to have a space and airtime to share that with friends and colleagues like you has been really, really special. Yep, and I've learned a lot. Our first segments together, you uh, translated for Susanna Baca and Mercedes Sosa, these legendary figures, and, and you are a professional translator. This is something you do, <laughs> and we've just learned a whole lot along the way. Thanks a lot. We sure have. Uh, it's not a goodbye. It's an hasta luego. Catalina Maria Jensen and Global Notes. Uh, check her out on social media at Catalina and Maria J. And uh, you'll learn a lot more about music and continue to learn a lot more about global music. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. <laughs> We're just about a